Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. This is part two of our finding a job in maintenance and reliability. So we had Carl Kaufman, Mike Pearson, and Allison Hawley on the show and they answered some of our audience's burning questions when it comes to searching for a job in the maintenance and reliability field. And really, I think it's pretty applicable to searching for a job in any field. Thank you for listening, and before we get started, a quick message from NanoPrecise, our sponsor. Hey listeners, this is Blair Fraser, one of your co-hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. And as you are probably aware, we have a sponsor, NanoPrecise. Each week we are going to bring you a snippet of information called Machine Doctor to the Rescue. This week's Machine Doctor to the Rescue for an exhaust blower in one of the leading steel plants. NanoPrecise, using their machine doctor, their six parameters in one, vibration triacs, acoustic emissions, temperature, true RPM, humidity, and magnetic flux, was able to detect an early fan bearing fault, which helped the end user save costly downtime. To find out more information, go to nanoprecise.io. And now on to the program. Welcome, everybody, to Maintenance Disrupted, uh, finding a job in maintenance and reliability Q&A. We've got a great panel here today. We've got uh, uh, Mike Pearson, Car- Carl Kaufman, and Allison Hawley back to answer your questions on finding a job in maintenance and reliability. So we've got a few good messages coming through on the, uh, on the, the website. Um, so we'll just start with the first one. And I really like this one. Um, and it's around pivoting from one industry to another. So I know I'll pass this one to Carl first, because I know, Carl, you specifically uh, worked on this, I, I think, a few times. So um, the question is how to successfully pivot from one industry to another, still within the re- reliability niche? Um, so I, I guess the, the, the thing to think about to start with is if you are looking to pivot, um, you really need to to get a clear picture of where you want to go uh, and what you want to pivot to, um, and and make sure that that you do the research and and you get to understand that industry and and where your skill set is going to be transferable and what skills are transferable, and also what. Uh, what other skills you may need to go out and, and build or, or look into. It's it's great to say, look, I want to pivot from, um, say, maintenance and reliability within um, refining or, or oil processing, midstream processing, something like that, and, and I want to move into maintenance and reliability within the renewable energy sector. Um, that's great, but where are you going to transition those skills? What skills do you have that are going to be suitable for a, a role in that different sector? And how can you, how can you leverage and, and, and promote those skills in, in your resume and, and when you're talking with potential hiring managers? And what other skills are you going to have to build? What are you going to need to go out and learn and, and do some of that research before you start that pivot? I would add something there as well of, of understanding, are you running to something or running away from something? So a lot of times you'll find if there's something you really hate about your job and you're looking to leave the entire industry over it, you know, is that something that is manager specific? Is it something that's just present in all workplaces? Uh, there's, there could be a lot of reasons. So really understanding your own motivation for why you want to switch is, is going to be really important as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the things I always find interesting about this question is like, I'm, at least for me, I feel like I myself am in the maintenance industry. Yeah, I work for mining right now, but that skill is very transferable between maintaining anything. And then it starts to get a little different when you start to look at like the airline industry and things with tighter regulations. So the airline industry, nuclear, those kind of things. Then I'm like, well, maybe I'm going to think twice about going that direction. Um, but like it is a very transferable skill set. And 
how do you think people that like uh, i've heard it a lot too especially with the forestry for some reason that like uh, forestry they're really looking for somebody with a strong forestry background like how do you get past some of those conversations when like maintenance at a plant a mill or uh whatever it might be is pretty consistent like the processes are fairly standard um do you guys have any thoughts on that I'll jump in on this one here. I think it's, it all depends on who you're talking to as well. Like there's attitudes around, you know, we need someone who is 100% an expert, or you can say, no, they can, someone else will come in and say, if they understand the concept, you know, and they have the right attitude, they'll pick this up very fast here at the same time. So overall, like if you're, you know, jumping into forestry, I, I do agree with you, Stephen, that, you know, if you have the, the skill set, the trade and, um, you know, the degree backing uh, your knowledge there, you're most likely going to come in and just pick it up right away. Even though for myself, knowing, having worked in the, in the forestry sector here as well, there are a lot of cases, you know, where hiring managers are specifically, you know, looking for that expertise coming in. So individuals can come in and hit the ground running. But unfortunately, I, I do believe, you know, what you're saying. Yeah, if you've got the, the background, you know, you can really pivot into that sector quite easily. I think as well that there's an area or there's a, there's a duty on, on people in my, in my position um, or, or anyone that's involved in the hiring process that's, that's working with hiring managers um, you know, whether you're an internal recruiter or, or an external recruiter or service provider to, to help in a, in a bit of an education piece for hiring managers that, you know, do you need someone that has worked on this particular type of mill or do you need to know, do you need someone who is a maintenance expert or maintenance and reliability specialist who can work on any type of mill and, and can apply their, their training and experience across a whole wide variety of, of equipment. And, and sometimes people aren't, aren't necessarily asked that question when they're saying, I need someone that's worked in, in, in this particular area or on that particular piece of equipment. Sometimes it's our duty to, to ask the question, why? Yeah, why do you need that person to have that specific skill set? Yeah, absolutely. No, those are those are great points. Um, all right. Um, so my next question, and I'm going to throw this one to to Allison first, uh, but definitely want everybody's input, of course. Um, what certifications and qualifi- qualifications, if any, are companies looking for? So. I'm sure that ranges quite a bit. And actually, you guys probably have a better uh, understanding of the overall. But uh, what I've been looking for is really just hands-on experience, right? So, um, and I've never looked for someone that had mining-specific background because I am definitely one of those people that believe that that piece of it is easily trained. But I'm looking for someone that has, you know, working experience that has, that understands what the challenges of a technician can be. And because that piece is a lot harder to train than everything else. So I, I've been a lot more flexible, but certifications has been something that I, I personally have not seen as much value in. Yeah, interesting. What are your th- thoughts, Mike or Carl? I'd say it, um, like it all really depends on on what, the opportunity is and, and what the hiring managers are looking for. If you're looking for someone highly specialized to kind of handle, you know, a very niche job, then yeah, there's going to be some certifications there that they're really looking for. But in, in general, um, if, if you're looking, you know, for a reliability engineer or anything like that, then, you know, you've got the background already for that. And then you just continue on uh, with your experience and knowledge. But at the same time, if you're looking to better yourself, then add that certification in, go out and learn and, and, you know, have that uh, ability to stand out from someone else. So that's, that's just it. That if you're looking for work and you want to stand out from anyone else that's out there, have those certifications that, you know, can, you know, push you forward from someone else looking for the same job as you. Um, But uh, skilled tradesmen or anything like that, you know, of course, you know, have the the IP or, or the provincial, uh, seal there for yourself and 
Um, if uh, I know for mill rates, you know, vibration analysis is huge as well that, you know, every, every uh, employer, you know, really, really values there too. Yeah. I'd also probably add um, a bit onto that in terms of when you, when you're applying for a, for a job and it goes back to one of the things we talked about um, originally, if, if the role that you're applying for is advertising specific um, skill sets or, or specific certificates as a requirement, um, make sure that if you've got them, you say that you've got them and you put that in your resume and you put that in your application. Because if you don't and you're using one of the, the, the electronic or automated screening tools when, when you're putting your application in, your resume is not going to get in front of the hiring manager unless you tick that box. So, so make sure that you tick the box um, b- before you apply. And That's to elaborate actually... on that, have that on page one, not on the back of your resume, <laughs> yeah. page one. Yeah, that actually is a really good point, right? Like if, and, and, you know, back to my point of, I might not care which certifications you have, but if you've gone through the work to, to have a skill set that's demonstrated in an area that we're looking to hire for, and especially if it matches with work experience, right? So often you'll see people that are going and, and kind of just trying to get certifications, but they don't have any work experience that line up with them, then those are definitely am not putting as much stock in that I don't know that you can demonstrate those skills because it's, it's not hard to get training, but if you have training and the paired work experience, yeah, that's definitely going to bring you, uh, more likely get you an in-person. Yeah. I always find certifications, a, a bit of a, an odd topic because I like, you know, you did the training or if you do whatever training course you get and there's a certification attached, it's, uh, like it's, do you, what's that actually proving? But if you have the certification that takes like years of experience to get um, like some of the, the vibration ones are a perfect one, like cat one, cat two, cat three, yeah. like those aren't cat one's easy to get. It's just a course and then you, you, you can get it. But if to get the more advanced ones, you have that experience component to validate that. And like you look at some certifications like the CMRP, that's a really popular one to see, but that's a fairly easy certification to get. You can read a book, write a test, and you got it. And I know a lot of people that have CMRPs that I wouldn't consider um, maintenance experts by by any stretch. So it's, but there's a there's somewhere in between it is going to be the right one, at least in my opinion. Um, <laughs> so the quality of the certification is probably probably important too. But in terms of ones that I've seen most out there, like CMRP is probably the most common and I think I've seen the lubrication ones as well like MLA1 or MLT1 um, and, but outside of that not not really a too much too much of you what have you guys been um, on your postings or, or requests from your your customers Mike and Carl what have you seen as like the most common certifications that people are looking for Oof. Uh, honestly a lot of it comes down to you know I'm, I'm just looking that, that PNG is a big one for me. Like, a, you know, my clients are asking for, well, you know, we need the engineer, but we need the PNG with it so they can sign off on, on a few projects here as well. Um, certifications outside of that, it, it, it's all just a nice, nice to have, uh, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one of the questions I got, in, and, um, and it does open to anybody, is around interview bias. So, like, when... A lot of times companies will or put things out there that uh, is, you know, they have something specific in mind that they're looking for. They've already hired somebody. Is there a way to, and, you know, a lot of time gets invested into these roles. Like you, you go through the process, you spend an hour applying to their online system then you get to an interview and you're like this, like they're just going through motions. Is there an easy way to, to spot that or, um, find that before you invest the time and effort into a role that was never really open? Not really. (laughs) You you have to hope or or expect that every role that's advertised or, or, and that you're applying for it is a genuine position that a company is looking to fill. Um, you know, 
the, the and the person doing the interview really should be treating every person they're interviewing with um, an e- equal amount of respect and time to understand and interview people that are potentially suitable to do the job. If if someone, in my opinion, is wasting their time interviewing someone that they're not realistically considering, what's the point of them even going through the interview in the per- in the first place? Um, candidates might feel that there's interview bias or, or that the interview is not progressing well because perhaps right at the start of the interview they didn't make the right impression and and the person doing the interview decided quite quickly that they might not be right for the job for for any reason but um i i think it's it's unlikely that someone would spend the time doing conducting an interview um with someone that they're not genuinely considering um progressing through the process um it, it it's unlikely that that anyone particularly uh, i mean maybe slightly different in, in an internal situation but um uh, someone working through uh, as an agent if you're going through an agency recruiter they're not going to spend their time interviewing someone that they're not considering to put forward for a role so one, and I'm not sure if this is the direction that Stephen was intending, but I can give it as a perspective I had being an interviewee, is I often had the concern of, am I the diversity interview? Are they interviewing me because they need to show they interviewed a woman? Am I, am I being seriously considered here? Um, and I, I never knew that answer. I, I know that I personally have never had like I've never interviewed anyone without genuinely considering them, even if it was like to make sure we had a good range. Um, but I, I would I would say to those people that are concerned that they are a diversity interview is is being mindful of that going in. Um, understand what biases people may be perceiving you with. Um, so I, I often put on my best man voice and <laughs> I'm, I'm conscious of not coming off overly feminine and there is a time and a place to be yourself and, and bring your whole self to work. And unfortunately the interview isn't the place. So if you're concerned that you're a diversity interview, I would, I would say be mindful of that because it's going to be really hard to get through that bias filter. Yeah. And it, it, it's a shame that we have to think or people have to think like that. I mean, I'm pretty lucky. I don't really ever have to think like that because I'm a, I'm a white male in a relatively male dominated industry, although recruitment's not, but you know, I, I've never had to really think about that or be concerned about that. Um, so, so I've been, I've been really lucky, but um if you're going for an interview, make sure that that, like you say, Alison, you're putting your best, you're presenting yourself in the best possible way to be successful in in um, in that interview. And a lot of that's down to addressing your skill set, your ability to do the job, and your experience doing that job in the past. Um, that should be what the 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 interviewer is looking for. Um, so if you're addressing those things. Um, then hopefully you're giving yourself the best possible chance of of being being into, into being successful. That's pretty sad to think about. That that has to be a real concern that you can't just like be be yourself in the interview and and like you said, Carl, I would have never thought of having to do that. I just show up as myself every day, and I I don't really worry worry too much about that. And I can't. I'm sorry that anybody has to experience that. That's that's absolutely terrible. But um, and interesting, your your comments on how to manage that and um, yeah, it's the the interviews I've done with people like that's never crossed my mind. But I know plenty of people out there in the industry that I've worked with that you know they might have a different opinion and might approach interviews differently with uh, different minorities and yeah we could do a whole podcast on just from what i've seen at the other side of the table of how to make sure your own biases aren't coming through but you know yeah and just being mindful of if you're the interviewee you, you know what you're criticized for that isn't valid and and how do you avoid some of those some of those pieces in the interview that you you know people are going to just like 
fit you into a stereotype. That's really the biggest concern. Don't let people see you as a stereotype. Make sure you're breaking outside of that mold, at least for that interview. You know, and that can happen too, just with like former job roles that you might've had. Um, like if uh, you're an engineer and you're applying for a maintenance super supervisor position, for instance, um, and you know, maybe rightfully so that there is that bias in the interview because you're going to get that from the crews that you're going to be supervising. And so are you able to effectively supervise that maintenance crew as an engineer when you haven't been on the tools? Um, like I think that's a valid, that's a valid criticism. The, the other one's not valid at all. <laughs> yeah. So um, kind of on that same vein, um, I think uh, we got a, we got a, Question there from Cameron in the chat. Are, are there particular personality traits that most employers are looking for that may be unique to the maintenance and reliability world? I know for me, I'll, I'll just start it. Well, everybody looks like they're, they're having a good think there. Um, <laughs> what I'm looking for that, you know, it's never particular to the maintenance and reliability world. I haven't done a ton of interviews, but I've certainly been interviewed a lot and I find that most people are just looking for somebody that they can uh, get along with that, you know, the, the work, the work is one thing, but they want to be able to have conversations and enjoy being around this other person. Cause if you, if you're supervising somebody, you're going to have lots of conversations. And so that ability to kind of, to have those conversations and be able to talk about things other than work, um, I think are important. I felt one of the, my earliest interviews, um, I got criticized, actually it was a, it was another recruiter and I was going through inter interview coaching with them and they they're like, you're like, that's fine. You know, you know, engineering stuff. That's great, but nobody's going to want to, nobody's getting the impression they want to work with you. You're, you're, you're too robotic. You're just, it's all about the job and the details of the job. There's no, there's no person behind this interview. And so bringing that human into the conversation, like, I've got, I've got two kids and the third one on the way. And like, you know, talking about that and to an aspect without, obviously you don't want to cross any, any lines. I've also had somebody ask me in an interview, how I discipline my children. I didn't think that was particularly appropriate question, but <laughs> um, you know, there's understanding that there's that human, human beside it and bringing the person you are out into the interview. And, you know, if that person is shy and quiet and, that's okay. Like I, nobody minds working with those people, but it's, they just want to get to know the real you. So I would say that that is something that I've seen more specifically in maintenance, not that I've worked in a ton, but I've worked in a few other industries and they're very much like skill set based first. You know, we want someone with a PhD in this area, or we want someone that's going to keep their head down and just work. And maintenance is very much a relationship based industry and, and good or bad, you know, there's probably an argument for either way, but that's the reality of it right now. And if you can't work as a team and you can't, uh, socialize within this industry. It, it is very challenging to uh, be onboarded, but then also be successful in that role. So I, I would agree. You know, making sure that you you can show that, you know, be able to laugh with the interviewer a little bit, and you're like fifty percent more likely to move on to the next stage. <laughs> that's just it too. <laughs> I was just going to say that that's just it too. Like if you're, if it comes down to that, there's three individuals all interviewing for one position you know, who are you most likely, they're all the same, same level skill. Who are you most likely going to hire? It's going to be that individual who, you know, you feel fits in with the, the team environment there as well. So, you know, you have to show that, you know, you're capable of, you know, interacting socially, not just in the work setting, but can just shoot the shit, you know, just talk, you know, with one another. So that's, that's basically a lot of it as well. Mm. I think though as well that there is um, there is also the need to to make sure that whoever is joining that team and and I agree maintenance is an area where um, it, it, there's a lot you need good communication skills you need to be able to get along with each other um, but you also need to make sure that you're balancing out your team. Um, particularly if you're the hiring manager, to make sure that, that the personalities are, are going to balance out. You're going to have some people that are really loud and want to talk and this and that, and you're going to 
you can't have every single person like that because no work could get done and, and it'd just be impossible. You need the, those balances of personality and, and um, all of that, those things to create, to create a good harmonious environment and, and an environment, particularly in maintenance, like, like a lot of areas where there's, where there's a decent level of psychological safety as well and people feel comfortable in the team so that if they see something's happening that's maybe not right, anyone can feel comfortable to bring it up and to make the point and say, hey, look, we, you know, we've, we've done this wrong or I don't feel that we, that, that this was checked appropriately because, you know, it can cause a catastrophic failure if something goes wrong and, um people need you need a balance of personalities to be able to help create that environment so um for for hiring managers maybe that are listening to this conversation don't just look for the person that's going to get on great with everyone make sure you've got that healthy balance on your team because because that will create a better team ultimately and 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 a better work environment that's going to get better outcomes it would also touch on in this this similar vein, but if you're looking to hire the person and the tiebreaker is that you got along great with them, is that because they're a lot like you? Are you bringing on more people that are, that are just the same mentality, the same sense of humor, because you all come from really similar backgrounds. So is it one, not helping you bring new perspectives into the team, but also, you know, going to be a challenge to increase diversity on your team as well? Yeah, to, to going back up. to the bias question. Eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you get along great with them, there's, there might be a red flag that the <laughs> a yeah. little bit of bias. I've done quite a bit of work with with people around um, building team cultures and and um, creating and culture curation essentially. And um, one of the most important things is don't always look for culture fit. Look for culture add so that the, the personality, the, the team, everything is adding to, to your team and your culture, not just fitting in with something that exists. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I, you hear HR professionals talk about all the time, like uh, you're not, uh, or uh, you, know, you didn't fit with the culture or, or something like that as, as that criticism. And it's, you, know, you, you kind of have to wonder like what kind of culture is it at that company that doesn't want to accept somebody for whatever, whatever reason it might be like, is my personality that off-putting if, you know, if maybe I, you hear that from a couple companies, maybe the answer to that is yes. Um, but again, it's always going back to that. You're interviewing a company to see if you're a good fit for them as well as if they're a good fit for you. And if your personality traits are setting off red flags for them, it's actually probably a good idea not to work there. Cause it's, it's not going to be well and I've had that too and I've had a job where my personality didn't fit with the rest of the companies which and and that's okay every not everywhere you work you're going to fit and you know you might transfer within the same company and you might have that problem like it's very supervisor very department dependent on what it might be and doesn't mean you're bad at your job it just means it's not a good fit right um yeah so in terms of um what kind of questions you should ask in a, in an interview? In our last one, uh, we had a Allison mentioned, you know, one of her go-to questions. What do you guys feel is kind of some of the best questions that you've heard interview interviewees ask uh, to get a good feel for that company? One of the, one of the best ones I've I've actually been asked was um, was by a. a, a Canada interviewee asking about the career path of their manager, what career path their manager took to, to actually get into that role. And I thought that was a brilliant question because for a couple of reasons, one, it was helping them that that candidate assess, is this the type of company that is perhaps going to give me opportunities to grow my career and progress my career? but also to understand the journey that the person they're going to be reporting into has gone on to get to, to that, that position. Um, and it also showed to me that that candidate was really, is really interested in progressing their career. So it, it worked out to be a good fit. I, I thought that was a brilliant question. 
um, just to find out more more about the company and and also show the interviewee in a really positive light to the person doing the interview. I would say so. This isn't a, I'm, I'm going to take the the negative version of this, um, but a question that I get asked quite often that I actually find really challenging to answer is when they ask questions that are too broad, where they're like, what's the best part about working for this company? And it's like, man, there's like thousands of employees that work here that probably all have different answers. Can you ask something about this department maybe? Um, so I find those really broad overall company questions really challenging to answer. And usually it's, it's a little bit of fluff. You're probably not going to get any valuable insight versus if you ask something that's more specific to the people in the room or the specific department, you'll, you'll likely get a better answer that's going to give you more insight. I always get paid on time. That's the best benefit, <laughs> yeah. right? There you go. <laughs> The, uh, the one question I always try to, you know, with, with coaching and interview coaching, I always try and have individuals kind of throw back, you know, at the interviewer is, you know, answer a question and then ask a question. So, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you feel like you have given a good response to a question, don't be scared to follow that up. How does that line up with what you're looking for? And I feel like that there is then showing that you are engaging in conversation um, and then you're showing interest in, you know, how was that response at the same time? Um, and I feel like that's just a, a good way of, you know, showing a lot of interest in, uh, in the opportunity and, and, and then just engaging in conversation instead of just answering questions. So I feel like that's a really good way of showing that uh, you can, you know, follow a question up and, and say that, you know, I'm pretty confident that I, I answered that really well too. And if you didn't, ouch, uh, <laughs> I guess it wasn't meant to be, but it's just one of those scenarios that, uh, you know, you, you're following it up with, with a question and, and showing that you're engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are always the interviews that I found gone best is, where I've been asking questions through throughout the interview. And then it comes back, like, what questions do you have for us? I'm like, well, I asked them all already. Like we, we had a good back and forth through the whole conversation. And um, like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I prepared a few, but to Allison's point, they were vague or, or whatever and didn't really fit in those kind of organic questions that come up throughout. Uh, th those always, I think, add the most context obviously it's important to be prepared but the more questions you prepared the more likely that you know it's going to come up throughout that interview and you can ask it and then it's a lot more of an organic conversation exactly um, yeah yeah if someone's looking to prepare questions a great one to prepare in advance um is to ask the interviewer if i was to be employed in this role six months from now how would you deem that I've been successful or I've been a good quality hire for you? Because then you're asking them, you know, what do they want to see you achieve in six months from now? And, and it gives you insight as the interviewee into what the company's going to want out of you. What are you going to have to deliver? Is that something that you want to deliver? Um, it also shows to the, to the person doing the interview that, that you are keen, that you want to achieve what, what they need of you. So it's, it works it works well to inform both parties. Something else in that light, in terms of like getting to understand a company, um, is asking what their onboarding process is. Because if you're coming into a company that is like well established and they, you know, they care about employee development, they'll have an onboard plan ready and they'll know exactly what you're going to do. If you're coming into a company that's a mess and they've got no HR plan, they can't answer that question. <laughs> And it's not always that a big company will have a decent onboarding plan. <laughs> they might be a big successful company that's been around ages, but they might have no plan on how they're going to onboard you. And it might be a really small 10 or 20 person outfit that actually has a really good way of bringing new people on board and, and getting them to understand the business and, and what's going on and what's involved in their role. Um, you know, so you can't just judge that on the size of the company. So yeah, it would be a great question. Great thing to learn. Well, and I would say, uh, just, I would say always have a question, you know, because mm -hmm. if you get to the end of the interview and they ask, you know, do, well, do you have any questions and you don't have any, 
they may look at that and say, are they really that interested in the opportunity if they don't have questions too? So I always try and say, come in prepared, have some questions, have them written down. Uh, don't just have questions, you know, in the back of your mind that you're going to ask, you know, physically have them written down, come prepared. Don't be afraid if you're face to face, have your notebook out with the questions listed there. And as you go through the interview, just cross them off if that question gets answered. And then when you get to the end of the interview, you'll say, well, do, do you have any questions? And then you could say, well, I had a list here, but we cr crossed them off as we went through the interview. So unfortunately, I don't have any questions, but you did answer a lot of them as we went through the process. That way you're showing that you had questions. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, so we got another question in the chat. Uh, what are the problems that companies are often trying to solve by hiring reliability, maintenance, engineers, developing predictive maintenance plans or implementing condition monitoring? So I think this is, you know, when you, I think about this question, I think of it in terms of like, you know, are we expanding a team? Like if you're just hiring to replace a role, um, that seems pretty straightforward. But if you're looking to bring in new maintenance engineers. Um, like I think, Allison, you're, you're probably a good one to kick this off because you've been bringing in a lot of new people in a lot of new roles that hasn't existed in your company before. Yeah, so um, I've kind of had two different areas. Um, one is I'm looking for a specialty. I'm looking for someone that already knows everything about a certain type of a piece of equipment and, you know, and I can train the skill sets in order to to actually be able to support the project work, but I need them to come with a certain set of experience. Um, the other one would be, <laughs> there's just too much work. <laughs> so sometimes I'm really just looking for someone to come in and backfill work that I, more technical people don't have the time for anymore. So especially as teams grow, it, there's, there's a lot of that that comes in where you're looking for someone that's going to be a little bit administrative that you can develop into bigger projects over time. So those have been kind of the two different types of people that I've hired. Yeah, for sure. Like, like I know for me and uh, I'm in a similar position as Allison, where we, you know, it's, we've got this work to do and mapping out what you need. And, you know, I, just going to the job postings. And I think this is where a lot of companies kind of will miss is even job posting. It's pretty vague. It's one page has half the page is taken up by very generic bullets of like what the co company expects in terms of, you know, ethics and integrity and safety and all that stuff. And then there's like, three lines of actual information on what the job is. Um, and it, it's, it's not always descriptive. So like, uh, you know, you, you look at something like maintenance and reliability. A maintenance engineer and a reliability engineer are actually two very different roles. And you're lumping them all into one. And like, there's a lot you can tell right from a posting. So if I see a posting for a maintenance and reliability engineer, I'm probably going to think, that's not the most advanced maintenance and reliability company out there. And they're going to expect you to be far more of a maintenance engineer than a reliability engineer. Um, whereas if you see a just a reliability engineer, then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is a lot more of the analytical work. I'm not going to be uh, nearly as much necessarily in the shop with the equipment. Um, and, and so there's a few things around that, but, that are, you, you can spot with the posting of what they're actually kind of looking for. And it's important too, because if you come in and you're a reliability engineer and you're coming in, you're interviewing for reliability and maintenance engineer, they're not gonna like the reliability, the questions of what makes a good reliable program because they're probably struggling um, to get any reliability across the line. They're, they're looking for somebody that can help bring in a reliability program potentially or, or something uh, but they're treating it as a little more of an on the side of the desk job. And so I'm not saying it's a bad place to work. It's just, you know, manage your expectations for what that job is going to be and, and talk about the um, talk about that however you see fit in your interview. Um, and if I had a posting up like that and somebody asked, well, uh, that kind of question around it, I'd be pretty impressed with that question. But I don't know if every hiring manager would be. <laughs> A lot of times too, it's just budget. We have enough for one engineer. We want them to do both these types of work. 
so we're lumping it all into one. <laughs> and that's probably a good thing to look out for no matter what, you know, how broad or specific is that role and, and what type of employee are you? Are you someone that wants to deep dive into one thing and be good at one thing? Or are you much happier being a jack of all trades and touching everything just a little bit? Because there are people that are good at both, um, but most roles are only one or the other. So be mindful of that when picking out what you're applying to as well. Yeah, and, and that, it really comes back to the importance of asking questions during the interview um, because job descriptions generally are written to be very generic and, and cover off a load of HR requirements um, and then jobs are posted with a kind of a cut and paste of the position description, which doesn't really usually tell you that much. Um, and it's not until you're in an interview that you get the opportunity to really ask some questions to understand what the job is, or, or at least when you're speaking to someone as a pre-screen prior to the interview, ask questions, find out what the job really is um, to work out if, if to decide if you want the job or not. You know, again, you're, you're interviewing the company as much as the company is interviewing you. So make sure you ask the questions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for our last question, uh, before we get into just kind of the closeout and plugs, um, what are the pay rates for reliability engineers uh, with different levels of experience? So I think um, I think maybe a, a better way to answer this is, do you guys have any good resources to find out if you're being paid fairly? I think a good, uh, at least for me, um, a good way to do it would be to ask somebody you know in the field if they're getting paid you know this and um i know everybody has different opinions on this but i am a believer of like, you should share your wage with the people you work with you know it's i don't i don't feel like that's betraying anything like if i negotiated something great that's awesome but if somebody's working just as hard as me or or maybe harder um should they not be getting compensated fairly in the same way? And um, I don't know what your guys' opinions are on that one, but uh, how, how would you, how do you go about finding out if you're being paid fairly? I totally agree. Ask other people, like cold, cold call people over LinkedIn, right? That you see who have similar, you know, if they don't want to answer, fine. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt you just to ask. Um, but a, it would just reinforce that, yes, like we should be transparent about our salaries. It really empowers the employees to have that kind of transparency, um, especially when we go back to the diversity conversation of, you know, is there bias in the pay that you received based on the perception of you as an employee? And, and you know, it's still going to be on the employer at the end of the day to make that decision of um, if you challenge your salary, if it's still fair or not, but um, you should at least be informed. Yeah, and, and there are some resources out there, you know, um, Glassdoor is, is a resource, gives you a range, there's there's a whole host of different companies put out salary surveys and and all of that sort of stuff each year, they'll, they'll put out reports of, of trends in, in certain areas, so there's a lot of easy ways you can research what is yeah, what are going rates for particular positions. Um, but I completely agree. People need to be open about what they're getting paid. But but at the same time, and, and pardon my French, not, not bullshit about it either. <laughs> you know, you talk, talk, about, talk about what you get paid and why you get paid that. Maybe you're working on a particular site where you get paid an uplift for this and that and, and the other thing, or you're working in a in a site where the wages are low because the cost of living in that rural area is, is significantly lower and people are quite comfortable getting paid that. And you know, all of those things are reflected in the, in the total package. Um, and, and people need to also take into account that when they're hearing about specific pay rates and maybe mm -hmm. the pay rate in, in, um, and the oil patch is really great because you're um, flying in and out and you're away from your family for two weeks at a time and you're living in camp and, and everything else. So you're getting compensated for that inconvenience and, and all the rest of it. Whereas 
you might be on a in a job where you're home in your bed every night and with the family in a great community with good schooling and hockey and and everything else that that works really well so probably the rate is not going to be as high or the the package isn't going to be as great because there's all the other benefits to being there including yeah. bonuses and stuff right it's yeah. not just your base salary bonuses can make a huge difference in your overall income big time yeah yeah i think it's it's sorry mike what were you going to say well I, I was just going to kind of elaborate a little bit as well that you know for for a reliability engineer, it all depends on the industry too. Um, mining pays X amount, oil and gas pays X amount, manufacturing pays X. So it all really depends on what's coming up and that's unfortunate. Um, but uh, I think that's just what each company is working with for their profits at the same time and their budgets. So if they, you know, really want to treat you well, then, you know, they, they may, you know, open the, the purses a little bit and give you a little bit more. So, um, you know, depending on, and, and the going back to the original question, you know, how do you differentiate between zero to five, five to 10? I think a lot of cases here too, it's, you know, what are you bringing to the table at the end of the day as well? Like, are you really, you know, bringing a lot of value to that employer? Then yeah, they may, you know, look at, at a review and say, you, you bring a lot and we're going to, you know, give you a little bit more um, after one year and seeing what you've done. Yeah, I, I would agree that years of experience really, it plays a piece, but it isn't the biggest factor in determining salary by any means. If you spent 10 years, you know, reporting and going through spreadsheets, that's not nearly as valuable as someone that spent even three years out in the field with hands-on, you know, reliability experience. Yeah, and I, I think when it comes to compensation, like you're absolutely right, different industries. And it's also one of the things that I think industry needs to do better, especially with, you know, we, we talked at the beginning of the this about industries being not as separate, like reliability engineer from one industry can move between industries. And with that comes also that range of wages that you're going to bring in because a forestry job is not going to pay the same as an oil job. And there's to, to expect the same. And, you know, if people are looking to get out of the oil industry, you're going to have to lower your expectations for wage because it's, it's not going to be the same, but you know, there's, and go moving into any reliable, 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 (laughs) renewables, sorry. Um, Moving into any of the renewables, like it's, they're generally a lower pay because, you know, they're more a demand. People want to feel good about the work they do. They want to work for a green company. So there's more demand for those jobs. So it's, you got to look, you got to look at yourself and decide what you value. Like, do you value being in a city? That's probably going to lower your, your wage a little bit. Do you value being uh, not doing shift work? That's definitely going to lower the wage expectations. And, finding where that sweet spot is of, okay, um, this is, this is what I can accept. This is the lifestyle that I want to live. And then finding a job that matches that I think is, you know, right now it is, a uh, a more of a market for the employee rather than the employer, um, that you kind of, you have that liberty to, to make that choice a little more for yourself and decide where you want to live and what lifestyle you want and see if you can find, a job that matches it. Like if you're um, like for me, I lived in Victoria, the lifestyle that I wanted to live in Victoria on the wages and cost of living there wasn't going to be possible for any jobs out there. So I made a choice and I moved and now I'm at a position where I can uh, have that lifestyle that I was looking for. Although it's not on, not nearly as nice of an area, but um, <laughs> every place has, it has the things that are nice about it. Right. So um, Yeah. Uh, that's my view on it anyways <laughs> people came mostly for your guys's views so i should just probably be quiet <laughs> <laughs> but what you're saying is right steve and it, and it ties into what allison was saying as well it's not just the base salary it's the bonus it's all the other things that go with the job as well the feel good factor because you're doing something that you it aligns with your view of the world the 
place that you get to live, the people that you're working with, the, the, the additional training that you might get, the long-term upside if there's an opportunity to participate in shares or options or, or anything like that. So it depends on the total package, not just the base salary. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I think we will close it out. So before we go, as always, we've got an opportunity to, um, if you guys want to give a quick plug on where to find you and anything you might have upcoming, we can start with you, Mike. Uh, well, yeah, I think we've kind of mentioned this, you know, Carl and myself, uh, we do work with another partner as well, Sean. He does a lot of our technical services recruiting there as well. Uh, you can find us at KPO Staffing dot com and uh, we're always happy to chat again excellent carl yeah thank, thanks mike uh, i agree um if you are looking though for specifically for information about how to pivot and and perhaps um oil field workers that are that are looking to to move maybe into the renewable space uh, reach out to me i can put you in contact with um ironandearth.org that is involved in in um, helping retraining specifically for for skills that are needed in in that um, in that renewable space for oil field workers. So um, feel free to reach out for me to me for that. Great. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, those links will be in the podcast description. Uh, Allison, uh, nothing upcoming for me at the moment, but uh, always available on LinkedIn if you want to follow me there for anything new. Excellent. Well, thank you everybody for your time. This was, this was really good. A lot of great questions came in and uh, this will be released as a podcast soon. Uh, so you can check it out there. And uh, of course, send any questions or any other information you want our way at uh, maintenance disrupted at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.